This program, Visual Intelligence, Sharpen Your Perception, Change Your Life, features a talk with lawyer and art historian Amy Herman. It was recorded on October 10, 2016, before a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Good evening. Volume is not my problem. Can everyone hear me? Okay. Uh, I understand I'm the opening act for David Petraeus tonight. He's upstairs. So um, I just wanted to say I'm, I'm very happy to be here this evening, but it's going to go very quickly. It's very nice to be home because I can speak quickly. When I go to Louisiana or Alabama, it's a problem. I have to repeat myself and I have to slow down. So it's very nice to be in New York and be able to speak at my normal speed. Uh, the only thing that I ask tonight in our discussion uh, for the next 45 minutes to an hour is that you refrain from using two words, obviously and clearly. Actually, I don't like to use a podium. I have a microphone, so I'm going to walk. Uh, I'm going to ask you to refrain from using two words, the words obviously and clearly, for the very simple reason that we live and work in a complex world. Nothing is obvious and even less is clear. If one of you breaks the rule tonight, I will call you out on it. Um, but rather than saying, obviously, it's case of X, I would prefer that you say, it appears to me to be of case of X because of Y and Z. OK, uh, the first slide, I put a lot of thought into the opening slide. And I tailored this program for many different groups. But I decided to open with a photograph that's on view in New York City. It's at the uh, Dan Arbus Show at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And the reason I selected this photograph is a couple of months ago, I received an email from a police officer, a very skeptical police officer. I remember him well. He was sitting in my class with his arms crossed, and he had never been to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And he sent me an email, and he said, Ms. Herman, your class opened my eyes, and I didn't even realize they were closed. So I begin with the photograph. I'm going to put you to work now. Can you please all put your right hand up in the air? All hands up. Take a look at the slide that I've put up on the screen. And when you see something definitive and unequivocal that you could describe to somebody who is not looking at the slide, you can put your hand down. If you see something, and don't discuss it with the person sitting next to you. <laughs> so many of you still have your hands up. And I'll tell you, keep your hands up, keep your hands up. If your hand is still up, I'm going to tell you that you're looking at a mammal. If you see a mammal definitively and unequivocally in this slide, you can put your hand down. Now, I know you're getting tired, but keep your hand up. I'm going to tell you, those of you who still have your hand up, that the mammal has four legs. If you see a four-legged mammal in this slide, you can put your hand down. You can all put your hands down now. <laughs> it's getting tiring. So I'm going to show you another version of this photograph. And I'm going to show you, oh, whoops, sorry. I'm showing you what you were looking at. You were looking at a cow. Raise your hand if you saw the cow. One, two, three, four. And the rest of you didn't. <clears throat> now, the reason I begin with this exercise is because about maybe three years ago, I went to the Rubin Museum downtown to see a man named Apollo Robbins speak. Now, <clears throat> for those of you who don't know who Apollo Robbins is, he's a professional con man. But now he works on the right side of the law. He's become a dear mentor to me, but I didn't know him then. And he was standing at the door at the, of the auditorium at the Rubin Museum, and he was shaking everyone's hand who came in. I didn't know what he looked like, so I shook this man's hand. Well, I got to my seat, and my bracelets were gone. <laughs> and people's watches were gone, and their wallets were gone, and their glasses were gone. Anything that he could possibly take, he did. So when we finally, he returned all our loot to us, 
And I decided I wanted to hear what this man had to say. And he began with this exercise. It's called the Renshaw cow. Now, do you see the cow now? Yes. You can't unring that bell, as they say. So he began with this exercise. This is not a trick photograph. This was used by a man named Dr. Samuel Renshaw in World War II. He developed a series of visual exercises to help Navy pilots discern enemy warfare faster. He'd show these visual exercises, and they had to say what they saw. So I attended the evening with a friend of mine, and she sat right next to me. And when Apollo put this slide up and said, put your hand up in the air, just like I asked you to do, and he said, put your hand down when you see something definitive and unequivocal, well, my friend put her hand down right away. And I'm thinking, is that a flying platypus? Is that a kitten down here? Is that an owl up there? I didn't know what I was looking at. And to make matters worse, my friend leans over and whispers, I can't believe you don't see this, she says. Now, first it makes me a little nervous, and then I start to sweat profusely because this is what I do for a living. This is how I, you know, I earn money, is by showing people how to enhance their observation skills. And I could have looked at this slide for 20 minutes and never seen this cow. So I begin with the premise that no two people see anything the same way. At the risk of sounding like a broken record, I'm going to say it again. So I show you a painting on the left by Giuseppe Archimbaldo from 1593, and it's called The Vegetable Gardener. It's a black bowl with onions and turnips and carrots and chestnuts. And if you turn it upside down, what do you have? A human head with a hat. And it reminded me of what the late Dr. Wayne Dyer said. He said, change the way you look at things, and the things you look at change. I'm going to say that again. Change the way you look at things and the things you look at change. In my role as the presenter in the art of perception, I'm helping people change the way they look at things, going from this to this. And that's what we're going to do tonight. So the session is called The Art of Perception, Rethinking How We See. By way of very, very brief background, because we don't have a lot of time tonight, I am a recovering attorney. I get that out there. I'm an attorney in recovery, and I'm also an art historian. And I've taken the practical aspects of each of those disciplines, legal analysis and visual analysis, and put them together in a program that I started 15 years ago for medical students when I was head of education at the Frick Collection here in New York City. It was not my idea. And with Yale's gracious permission, I started the program at the Frick Collection that was at Yale Center for British Art and Yale Medical School. And everything was working beautifully. I had medical students coming and going from the Frick. Everything was great until I went out to dinner one Saturday night with some friends. And I was telling them that my medical students had vision like this, that it was all diagnosis and anatomy and physiology, which is what you would expect from medical students. And my friend said to me, why are you just doing this for medical students? Why aren't you doing this for people that really need good observation skills? I said, like whom? And he said, like cops. Why aren't you doing this for homicide detectives? And I thought, I don't know. Why am I not doing this for homicide detectives? So that was Saturday night. Monday morning, I picked up the phone, and I went big. I decided to call the NYPD. And I want you to picture the guy at the switchboard. I said, hello, my name is Amy Herman. I'm the head of education at the Frick Collection, and I have a great idea. I train medical students to enhance their observation skills, and I think you should send homicide detectives. There was dead silence on the other end of the phone. <laughs> Nobody knew what to do with me. I was transferred seven times, <laughs> seven times until I got to Deputy Commissioner Jim Fife, who I knew got it, who became a dear friend of mine, has since passed away, but I knew he got what I was saying when he said to me, Miss Herman, if this is such a visual thing, why are we on the phone? <laughs> got it, right? Six months later, every newly promoted captain in the NYPD had to take my class at the Frick Collection. I loved it. I had cops coming and going. They were in the Frick Collection. Everything was great until the Wall Street Journal called and said, 
we understand you have cops at the Frick. What are you doing to them? As if something illicit were going on at all places of the Frick collection with a bunch of police officers. So I said to the Wall Street Journal reporter, come see what we're doing. So she came to nine different classes, and unbeknownst to me, she was going out on the streets into the precincts and asking these officers and these detectives and these homicide investigators, how are you doing your job differently after learning to look at works of art at the Frick? And on July 25th, 2005, the article appeared on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. Column A1, it said, to master the art of solving crime, cops study Vermeer at the Frick. Every inbox in my life exploded. I got calls and emails from agencies I heard of. I heard from the FBI and the CIA and the military. And I heard from first responders and medical schools. And you name it, they all called and said the same thing. Come teach us how to see like you did those cops in New York. And the bottom line is I can't teach anybody how to see. Uh, I'm not trained in forensics or optics. I'm an old lawyer who happens to be an art historian. So I ended up quitting my full-time job, and this is what I do now full-time. I travel the world. Uh, it is my honor and privilege to work with 13 divisions of the NYPD now. I train all new surveillance agents of the FBI. I'll be on a plane tomorrow morning for the FBI. I train all even-numbered teams of the Navy SEALs. Uh, I work with all new analysts for the CIA. I work with CEOs, social workers, doctors, first responders, you name it. And I'm not telling you this to tell you how busy I am, and, and now I've written a book. Now I'm on a book tour. I'm not telling you this to tell you how busy I am. I have a very unique lens across the professional spectrum, and this is what I've concluded. Observation and perception is not the problem. The problem is in the effective communication of what it is that we see. Something gets lost from here to here to here and to here, and I don't know what it is. But I'm using art to try to solve the problem. So that's what we're going to do. That's how I ended up here tonight. Uh, I'm thrilled. I'm going to talk about the book, and I'm going to give you an overview of what it is that I do. You can all groan if you want to. It's all right. I can sum up my session in these two slides. For those of you, and I can't believe there's anyone in the room who doesn't know what the slide on the right is, but I'm going to tell you that about two and a half years ago, a woman in the UK purchased this dress, and she put it up on social media, on Tumblr and on Facebook, and she asked the question, what color is my dress? And my first response was, who cares? You bought it. You're wearing it. But for some reason, the question and the responses went viral. Now, by show of hands here, I want you to raise your hand if you see this dress as white and gold. Hands up. About 10 of you. OK, hands down. If you're sane like me and see it as blue and black, raise your hand. OK, hands down. And who sees it as something else? I can't worry about you. I'm sorry. But there's always one of you. Is it blue and gray to you? Purple, even better. I can't worry about you. Because across the, my classes, 60% of the people that look at this slide, approximately, see it as white and gold. 39% see it as blue and black. And then there's always one of you who sees it as something else. And I'm not going to get into a discussion of rods and cones and why our brains perceive of color the way we do. That's the way it is. But I'm not worried about a dumb dress. I'm worried about when two people are at the client meeting, two people are in the boardroom, two people are in the operating room, two people are at the crime scene, and they walk away with fundamentally different perceptions of what they just saw. That's what I'm concerned about. So that's half the class. The other half is, do you all know what a Domino's pizza box looks like? So in May of 2015, there was a particularly heinous crime committed in Washington, DC. A CEO, his wife, their 10-year-old son, and their housekeeper were held hostage and murdered in their homes, and then the, in their home, and then the house was set on fire. And the crime scene investigation team that came in the next morning, who I've had the privilege of working with, came in, and one of those investigators had the wherewithal not just to see the Domino's pizza box on the kitchen floor, but to ask the question, do you think these people in this neighborhood, in this house, would order Domino's pizza? 
And with a gloved hand, he lifted the top of the box, and there was some crust in the pizza box, and he picked up one of the crusts, he put it in a plastic bag, and he sent it away for DNA analysis. Don't you know they had a suspect in 48 hours based on the DNA in the saliva on the pizza crust? Now, in my world, we call that good police work, but it's something else, and forgive me for the pun. It's thinking outside the box, I'm sorry. It's thinking outside the box. So the other half of my class, the first half is, no two people see anything the same way. And the second half is, we need to solve problems creatively. Because the answers to yesterday's problems aren't going to be, or yesterday's problems are not going to be the solutions for tomorrow. And as my friend Apollo Robbins said, ask new questions and question old answers. So why do I use art? I love it. It's what I've studied, but it also gives us a whole new set of data, something completely different to look at across the professional spectrum. The painting on the left, the Jan Steen. It's men and women and drinking and dogs and birds and windows and light and babies and music. It's, it's crazy. It's a cacophony. It gives you so much to look at. And then you have a black bowl with a rust-colored bottom and five quinces. Not apples, not pears, but quinces. The craziest painting and the simplest painting and everything in between. Art gives us the opportunity to look at data differently and tie it to our professional responsibilities. I'm not talking about Picasso versus Pollock in any of my classes. And if you like art, that's wonderful, but you need to leave your art knowledge at the door for my session. It's new visual data. It's new and it's different, and we're not even going to talk about Picasso versus Pollock. We're going to talk about shifting your perspective tonight, because you can imagine with some of my audiences, I have to encourage them to shift their perspective, to go with me, and I promise them at the end of three hours, you won't be here for three hours, that they're going to leave thinking differently about their work. So I show you a photograph by JR. Now, for those of you who don't know who JR is, he's a photographer. He's a photographer who takes pictures of women and he blows them up to billboard size. He puts them all over the world on sidewalks and on sides of buildings and tops of buildings. And when JR was just starting out, he had a little problem with the law. He used to put his photographs all over the world and never get a permit to do it. So there were some countries that issued warrants for his arrest because he was defacing public property. And while one of those warrants was pending, he was asked to create this self-portrait. And I love it. You know what it's called? Self-portrait in a woman's eye. Why did he shift his perspective? Because he took a picture of himself and he didn't show you what he looks like. Why? Because if you saw his facial attributes, it would be easier to be arrested. So I ask you to shift your perspective like JR to think about looking at art to help with your professional responsibilities. Why do you have to shift your perspective? Because this is the world we live in now. Shootings and civil rights issues and the most contentious election of our lifetime and the Supreme Court hanging in balance and the bombing in New York City two weeks ago. This is the world we live in locally and this is the world we live in internationally. We haven't wrapped our heads around ISIS and the bar is raised every day so we need to be thinking about what we're looking at to be able to solve the problems. And I just have to share one thing at the risk of going overtime. What happened on Friday night, I was in London and I gave a lecture at the National Gallery on this exact topic. And I put this slide up. And when the evening was over, a woman made a beeline for me. And she said to me, I can't believe what a racist you are. And I thought, oh, I hope you enjoyed the lecture. She said, I said, why are you calling me a racist? She said, because in the picture of the international terrorism, you put a picture of a random Muslim couple in the upper left-hand corner. And how racist of you to put a woman in a, in a uh, shador and a Muslim man in your illustration of terrorism. And I had to explain to her that this is not a random Muslim couple. These are the shooters in the San Bernardino terrorist attack. And she didn't know who they were because she lived in London. 
and you know what she confessed to me? She said, you were, I was so upset at your racist picture, I didn't listen to the rest of your lecture. How often do we do that? How often do we rush to judgment because we think we know what we're looking at and everything else falls by the wayside? Why else do you have to shift your perspective? I'm showing you an icon in art history. Luncheon on the Grass, 1863. I don't know why it's this modern painting. Two fully clothed men, a naked woman. I don't know how her clothes ended up here. Her food is over here. There's a woman in the background playing in the water. It's just one of those paintings. But 100 years later, look what Picasso did with it. He turned it on its head. You still sort of have the fully clothed men, sort of. The naked woman, her food is over here. And look, the woman in the back lost her clothes, and now she's moved up to the front of the painting. <laughs> Picasso took an icon in art history, Luncheon on the Grass, and he turned it on its head because no two people see anything the same way. Why else do we have to shift our perspective? Because the people that I work with do not have the professional option of looking the other way. This was the cover of the Arts and Leisure section about a year ago, and it was tailor-made for me. Ten paintings flipped around so you could see the back of the paintings and just their frames. And it reminds us, you can't look away. You can't look away from what you don't like like a Damien Hirst lamb suspended in formaldehyde. You can't look away from what you don't understand, like a $19 million Cy Twombly drawing. And you can't look away from what makes you uncomfortable, like a nudist colony in New Jersey. <laughs> you don't have the professional option of looking away. And the art of perception gives you the opportunity to look at things that you don't like. I'm going to make you squirm and look at this one for a while. Look at things you don't like, look at things you don't understand, and look at things that make you uncomfortable, because if you can learn to confront them here, you can do it back in the real world. You also have to learn to shift your perspective to be able to create a narrative when something is missing. What do you do when critical information is missing? Look at this photograph by Ellsworth Kelly. Who even knew Ellsworth Kelly took pictures? You did. And uh, notice that the big pane of glass is missing. It's called Broken Window in Paris. But what's critical about this picture is if you look at the bottom, there are his legs. It's a self-portrait, and yet the pane of glass with his image is missing. How do we communicate when information is missing? But something else is going on, something called disruption. And I'm sure you've all heard the overused phrase disruptive technology, things that are fundamentally changing the way we live our lives and the things that we do. And so looking at art can expand the way we see and how we're dealing with all the disruptions in technology, in social media, in cultural forces. I show you an object by Stephen Young Lee. It's a vase. It's a beautiful vase with a, with a dragon, blue and white dragon pattern, but it disrupts the way we think of a vase. What does a vase do? It's a vessel that holds something. This vessel doesn't hold anything. That's why it was created. It's still a work of art, and it stretches our mind to think about disruption. Whoops, sorry. I have a very active um, clicker here. Sorry. There we go. Disruption. And another idea of looking at art to disrupt the way we think. I'm showing you a series of portraits by Naoko Wasugi. And she's a uh, South Korean woman who lived in Japan. And she moved to the United States. And she spoke one word of English. The word was yes. That's all she, she learned. And she took 30 portraits of people who taught her English. And she took a picture of them saying the word they taught her. So there are people speaking in these portraits saying, terrific, wussy, gynecologist. And these are all the people that taught her these words. And the title of the portrait is, thank you for teaching me English. But who thinks about portraits talking? Who thinks about words coming from portraits? So I told you half the session is about 
understanding that no two people see anything the same way, but it's also about creative problem solving. In 1880, Manet, the artist Manet, entered into a contract to paint this little painting of asparagus. It's about this big. And he entered into a contract. The collector was going to pay him 800 francs to make this little painting. Well, the check arrived, and it was 1,000 francs instead of 800. And I guess they didn't offer refunds in the 19th century. Manet didn't know what to do. What do I do? We contracted for 800 francs. I painted the painting. So what did he do? He painted this. He painted a single asparagus, and he sent it to the uh, collector with a note that said, one fell out of your bunch. <laughs> it's about creative problem solving. So I'm showing you the lovely Mrs. Maud Dale now, Mrs. Chester Dale. Her husband was a wealthy philanthropist. He had art. He had money. He left it from museums all over the country. And he commissioned these two artists to paint his wife. Leger on the left, George Bellows on the right. If I didn't tell you they were the same person, would you necessarily know it? Probably not. No two people see any one the same way. This goes for situations and environments and problems. I'm showing you two paintings by Matisse. The one on the left is from 1905. The one on the right is from 1914. They're the same painting. They're called Open Window at Couleur. But by 1914, Matisse changed his mind. The world wasn't full of pinks and blues and oranges and greens anymore. It was on the eve of World War I. His town in France had been taken over by the Germans. His brother was being held prisoner. The world was a bleaker place. Now, I tell the people in my classes, the fact that they're sitting in my class tells me they don't paint for a living. They may do those adult coloring books. That's all fine. But they don't paint for a living, and this is not a professional option. When someone asks, why did you do something, you can't say, because I felt like it. Or I've been on the job for 20 years. My experience told me what to do. That's not an option. You saw this. You noticed this. I perceived this to be the situation. Therefore, I acted accordingly. Now, did you ever meet anyone who wants to show you how smart they are? I have one in every class. So when I put these two works of art up, I say, OK, who's going to tell me? Similarities and differences. Oh, hands go right up. Easy. It's a man and a woman on the left, two men on the right. Hair on the left, bald on the right. They're both white on the left, one's, one's black on the right. On and on and on. And what I really want the astute observer is to lay the groundwork first and say, you know what? I'm looking at two works of art. The one on the left is a painting. And the one on the right is a photograph. Because if I'm on the receiving end of your email, I can't see what you see. And everyone's in such a hurry to show you how smart they are. Lay the groundwork first. And then I'd want the astute observer to say, you know what? I'm looking at two works of art. The one on the left is a painting. The one on the right is a photograph. Each one has two people in it. And I'm looking at them in profile. Because again, if I'm getting your text, I'm getting your email, I'm on the phone with you, I can't see what you see. And if you're in such a hurry to show me how smart you are and you never stated the problem, we're all in trouble. And there's always time to show how smart you are. There's always time to put things in context and show themes and weave them together. The painting on the left is from 1630. The one on the right is from 2015. Any similarities? Sure there are. They both have gold chains. You have a headless figure on the right, and there's a headless figure somewhere on the left. You have viscera on the right, viscera on the left. You have a powerful woman with a sword. You have a powerful torso. The one on the right, I love it. It's called intestines and tassels. Intestines and tassels, what a great title. There's always time to, pull, to put things in context and be able to articulate what it is that you see. Now, I have a theme in my program. It's called Handsome Women of the 18th Century. And she is the first. I love her. Mrs. Hannah Winthrop, Mrs. John Winthrop. Why? She's the most important slide in this whole presentation. Why would she be the most important? She's wearing a red and white bow in her bonnet. She has brown hair, dimples, multiple chins, multiple pearls. Blue dress, blue and white bow, and she's sitting in an upholstered chair. What could possibly be so important about her? It's this table down here that's the problem. 
If I asked each of you in the room to describe the painting, more than half of you would leave the table out of your description. And you say, so what? Who cares? It's not about the table. It's about the grand Mrs. Winthrop. The problem is this is hiding in front of you. It's hiding in plain sight, and you're not seeing it. In my house, we call it the mayonnaise problem. Do you ever go into the refrigerator looking for the mayonnaise? You take everything out, and where's the mayonnaise? It's right there. And have you ever said to a colleague or a friend, how did I miss that when it was right in front of you? Mahogany tables are dangerous in the intelligence community, in law enforcement, in medicine. They're dangerous everywhere. And the way we get around them is to ask other people, this is what I'm working on, this is what I'm doing, this is how I plan to solve the problem, is there something here I might have missed? Big picture, small details. Rubens, Samson, and Delilah. I saw it at the National Gallery last week. Yes, it's the big picture. It's the biblical narrative. Uh, Delilah figures out she flirts with Samson. They have quite a night of passion. She figures out that his strength lies in his hair. Yes, she, he falls asleep. She cuts his hair off. But think about all the details. That's the big picture. You got the Philistines back here at the door waiting for Samson's hair to come off. You have Venus and Cupid back here in a niche. Notice the old woman and Delilah parallel what Delilah is eventually going to turn into, the light of the candle, and how the man is cutting hair with such artful hands. Small details and the big picture are equally important in the professional world. One doesn't, uh, is not more important than the other, and we have to be able to articulate them both. So here we are. This is where you're going to start to work. This is where it becomes participatory. Look at these two works of art that I've put up. Tell me how they're similar or different in any way, and I'll give you a hint. They're both paintings. Similar or different? Don't say obviously or clearly. They're both white women. Yes? The one on the left is looking out at Absolutely. The woman on the left is looking out, and the woman on the right is looking down. Anything else? How about she's old, she's young? Yes? Yes, they each have something in their hands. The woman on the left is holding a naked man. I like to throw nudity in. And the woman on the right is knitting. Anything else? Yes? Absolutely. The woman on the right is in a colorful dress. The woman on the, I'm sorry, on the left is in a colorful dress and on the right in a black dress. Yes? The woman on the left has a wedding band. The woman on the right does not. Okay. Now, I'm going to twist that a little and say she's wearing a ring on the fourth finger of her left hand. And in fact, it's hard to see in the picture, but so is the woman on the right. That's the difference between observation and inference. If you have a ring on the fourth finger of your left hand, you're wearing a ring. It's an inference to say she's married. Are we ever going to talk about this right here? You know, the woman on the left is wearing a very low-cut neckline. And the woman on the right is wearing a very high-cut neckline. And if you say you don't notice it, you're lying. Everybody sees this. So I have a group of, you know, 250 homicide investigators. And I say, I say, did anyone notice the neckline of the woman on the left? And they all say, oh, no, no, we didn't see it. <laughs> we need to say what we see. It's not so much saying what we think. We need to lay the groundwork. Yes? Yes, the woman on the right, her hat is covering her hair, and the woman on the left, the headdress seems to come around. But now, in the interest of time, because I want to hear more about what you say, but I want to expand the inquiry. And I want to expand it now, and I'm going to make the assumption, yes, it's 7.35 in the evening, it's Monday, it's Columbus Day, I know all that, but I'm going to make the assumption you all know who these gentlemen are. Mm -hmm. And for purposes of the session tonight, the one on the left is number one, and the one on the right is number 16, just to make it easy. And instead of saying who, what, where, and when, as we do in the beginning, I want you to expand it and think about body language, facial expression, nonverbal communication, and eye contact. How are these images similar or different, thinking about that model of inquiry? And don't say they're both dead white men who were president of the United States. We know that. How are they similar or different? Yes? On the left, number one is standing. On the right, number 
Absolutely. Number one is standing. Number 16 is seated. What else? Yes. Sure. Number one has his hand out. Number 16 has his hands in. And we could go through their body language. My homicide detective said a couple months ago, number one's wearing a dress. He is wearing a dress. Number 16's wearing a suit. But how come in 95% of my classes, no one says out loud, number one's a painting and number 16's a photograph? No one says it out loud. We all see it. Our brains register, but they think it's so obvious. Who wants to say it? And you know what the problem is? If I'm on the phone with you, I can't see what you see. Lay the groundwork. And if you ever wondered about body language, facial expression, nonverbal communication, and eye contact, have you ever seen this photograph? Sure you have. And if I were to ask you what's in it, I don't want to hear Osama bin Laden. He's not there. Your visual analysis of the picture is it's 12 to 14 mostly white men, two women. Oh, sorry. We'll get there. Two women and one very important black man, the President of the United States, in the back of the room. And when I showed this picture to soldiers and officers before they deployed to Afghanistan, and I said, what do you see? One of the officers raised his hand, and he said, you know, the only guy doing any work in that picture is in uniform. Because that's what they see. That's what they're looking at. Everyone has a different perspective. Now, to my favorite. I told you, I work with a lot of cops. I've been working with cops for years and years. And when I ask them to compare and contrast this, I've already heard them say before marriage and after, so don't say it. That's all, I've heard it a thousand times, a thousand times. But what I want to do is compare and contrast these two works of art. How are they similar and how are they different? How are they similar, how are they different? They're both naked. They're both naked, good. And they're both women. Yes, what else? The one on the top appears to be awake and the one on the bottom appears to be Or passed out or holding on for dear life. Yes, what else? Not clearly, just, Sorry. that's okay. <laughs> the picture on the top is in a black um, background. Yes. Yes, black background on the top, more colorful in the, in the bottom. What else? Yes. The, the one on the bottom has a great deal more flesh. Yes, what an artful way of saying it. She said the woman in the bottom picture has a great deal more flesh than the woman in the top picture. Yes, Sarah. The woman on the bottom is gripping her breast, is holding her nipple. She is. Yes, the woman in the top picture has her hands behind her head, and the woman in the bottom picture is holding her breast. And I would have uh, stopped it there, but I have to share with you to tell you that other people have perspectives I would have never thought of. One of my police officers raised his hand and said, how do you know someone's not trapped under there? (laughs) That's what he saw. And I would have never said anything like that or thought of anything like that. But let me tell you the real reason I juxtapose these two images, and it's not about size, it's not about girth, it's nothing to do with that. I asked a group of psychiatrists about eight years ago, similarities and differences. And this psychiatrist was from South Africa, and he had the most beautiful accent I've ever heard. You've heard it. (laughs) And he gave me permission not only to repeat his comments, but how he said it. He stood up, and he said, the woman in the bottom picture is morbidly obese, and the woman in the top picture is perfectly healthy. And I said, you know, doctor, with all due respect, can you really tell me that the woman in the top picture is perfectly healthy? How do you know she's not schizophrenic? How do you know she doesn't have a blood disorder? How do you know she's not deaf? And to his credit, he said, oh, I can't believe how wrong I was. I'm so sorry. And I said, you know what? You weren't wrong. Your choice of words was poor. And I want to remind you that there are very, very, very few things that are 100% in your control. Choice of words is one of them. Both in writing and in speaking, choice of words is 100% up to you. And I implore my classes, don't make poor word choices. 
Now, I moved to photography and photojournalism because some people find it more accessible. They think it's uh, easier, and I want to make sure they have tools to go back to their jobs. So I show them different photographs and ask them to say what they see. What did you just see in that picture? And don't say a woman giving birth. That's not correct. Yes, it did. Sculpture in the water. Yes. Flag on top of one of the buildings. Yes. German flag. Good observation. What else? People in pleasure boats. A green roof. This is what you saw. And people say, a woman in the water a woman giving birth, and they go on and on. It's a classic example of you know what you saw. You saw three pieces of sculpture. It's a woman's head from the chin up and the tops of two bended knees. There is no other sculpture under the water. It's water, it's people in boats, it's a German city, it's Hamburg. But it's the idea of looking at something, knowing what we see, and being able to communicate it effectively. Now, when I started working with the CIA many years ago, they gave me their open source online document to read called The Psychology of Intelligence Analysis. I do not recommend it as bedtime reading, but there's a whole chapter on perception. And I've narrowed it down to three questions for you. Every new client, every new situation, every new crime scene, every new intelligence problem, you ask three questions. And I want you to think of those questions when you're looking at this slide. Number one, what do I know? What do I definitively know about the picture? Number two, what don't I know? And you say, well, how do I know what I don't know? You identify what's missing. And number three, if I had the opportunity to get more information, what do I need to know? So it's what do I know, what don't I know, and if I had the opportunity to get more information, what do I need to know? What do you see here? What do you definitively see? Shoes. What else do you see? Water. Two bridges and a pier. What don't you know? Where this is, where are the people, whose shoes are they, why is the picture being taken? And the third, question logically follows. If you had more information, if you could get more information, what do you need to know? Where is this? What happened? Why are the shoes here? And this is a sculpture, and it's called Shoes on the Banks of the Danube. And it's 60 pairs of iron shoes nailed to the embankment to memorialize where the Arrow Cross militia brought Jews in 1944, brought them to the water's edge, told them to take their shoes off, and they killed them. And they fell into the water. So not only is it a poignant memorial, these are iron shoes, men, women, and children. It also gives us an opportunity to say, what do I know? What don't I know? And if I, had more, if I could get more information, what do I need to know? Now, don't tell me what you, what you think of this picture. Tell me what you see in this picture. What do you see in this picture? Two people. Yes. A woman holding a child. A woman holding a child. That's a good safe start. Yes, what else? Two different ethnicities. The woman has brown skin, and the child appears to be white. The woman has brown hair, red lipstick, a gap in her teeth. The boy is blonde, blue-eyed. We don't know what his tooth situation is. Striped shirt, white collar, and a red round neck blouse. Let's go someplace that's not so safe. What do you think the relationship between these two people could be? What could it be? Could be the nanny. What else could it be? Could be a housekeeper. What else could it be? Could be the mother, could be the grandmother, biological, foster, adoptive. It could be almost anyone. The only answer I do not accept, I actually got this morning. Someone raised his hand. I trained hostage negotiators. And somebody raised their hand this morning and said, maybe she kidnapped him. This is not an active kidnapping situation. It could be almost anything else, but it's not a kidnapping. So about eight years ago, yes? Good. A buffet, that's good, I never heard that. <laughs> 
There is a third person in the background over here, good observation skills. But about eight years ago, I put this slide up and I asked the group just what I asked you. I said, what do you think the relationship between these two people could be? And a woman in the back of the room raised her hand and she said, the woman in the picture is the biological mother of that child. And I said, well, that's a conclusion. That's an inference. How'd you get there? She said, look at their noses. They're exactly the same. So I turned around and I looked at their noses and this is what I said to her. I said, I happen to have information. It's not the baby's mother. And from the back of the room, she pointed a finger at me that I think she wished was a dart. And this is becoming a recurring theme in my life. She said, Miss Herman, you're a racist. Why does this happen to me? She said, Miss Herman, you're a racist. And I said, you know, I talk about a lot of things, a lot of topics that no one else wants to talk about, but I take an accusation like that very seriously. Why did you tell me? Why are you telling me I'm a racist? She said, difference between hearing and listening. She said, you just said that that woman can't be the biological mother of the child. I said, you know, I live in New York City. It would never come out of my mouth that a brown-skinned woman couldn't have a white child because we see it all the time. I've seen every iteration of mixed ethnicities out there. I said, besides, after nine months of pregnancy, 27 hours of labor, and a C-section scar this big, I know very well who this child's mother is. It's me. It's my son. And that is his babysitter from Trinidad. That's the whitest child you're ever going to see. There is no biological tie between these people. Is, was she the center of my household? Absolutely. And 11 years later, look at that. Notice that he grew up and she didn't. But you see, that's a conversation we need to have. We need to talk about race. We need to talk about assumptions, preconceived notions, and biases. But here's the conversation I don't want to have, and I have to have it all the time. I work in hospitals. I do grand rounds for doctors and nurses and social workers. And when I put this picture up, major urban hospital in the United States, and I said, what do you see in the picture? The chief of emergency medicine raised his hand and said, that child has Down syndrome. And I said, really? I said, what evidence of that condition do you see? And he said, no, I don't see any evidence. I know it when I see it. I've been told by medical professionals, my son is an albino. But my favorite is someone said, that child has a thyroid condition. I said, why do you think he has a thyroid condition? They said, because he has a compressed neck from multiple surgeries. I said, you know, I said, my kid was so fat till he was three, there was no neck. And you know what? He has a neck now. How about that? So all these people, and they talked about Monica's eyes, and she's going blind, and she has glaucoma. So all these people came running to the podium to apologize to me for saying these things about my family. And I said to them, oh, somebody last week told me, you ready? He looks like a baby Donald Trump. You can say almost anything about my kid, but not that. So all these people came running to the podium to apologize for saying these things about my family, and I'm going to tell you what I said to them. I put a picture up, my kid, you have to have a thick skin. I said, but do not reach for what you want to see. Do not reach for a conclusion that you think you need to get to because you want to close the deal. You want to finish the case. You want to sew up the investigation. You are accountable for every observation along the way. So very quickly, I'm going to give you one of my exercises that I give to the FBI. I'd like you to introduce yourself to the person next to you. And if you're three, you can be three, but meet the person next to you. Okay? All right, now. You found a partner, this is what we're going to do. Okay. One of you in the partnership or the trio is going to look at the slide that I put up, and your partner is going to close his or her eyes and try to get a mental picture of what is being described to you. And at the end of 45 seconds, I'm going to call time. The listeners are going to open their eyes, 
and then all talking ceases, and I'm going to direct my questions to the listeners. Got it? Decide who's going to close their eyes and who's going to look. All right. And if you're in a trio, one of you describes and two of you listen. All right, half the room, close your eyes. No cheating. Close your eyes. Okay, 45 seconds, not to describe this one, 45 seconds to describe the following slide. Go. Go ahead. Open your eyes, don't say another word. Open your eyes, do not say another word. Okay, one of these pictures was being described to you, listeners, and I want you to raise your hand when I point to the one that you think was being described to you, and there is no pinching or hitting or kicking on the part of the describers when I point to the correct one. All right, listeners, how many of you think upper left was being described to you? Raise your hands. Okay, hands down. Who thinks the bottom was the one being described to you? Raise your hands. And who thinks it was upper right? It was upper right. All right, now. All right, so here's my question. Okay, so here's my question, and I'm going to go back here. If you got it correct, if you got it correct, tell me what your partner said to make you choose the right one. Yes? She said it's rich color. Rich color. Okay, and that was the only one that was rich color for you. Rochelle. Uh, she said that there were three and a half openings in the bridge. Pretty good, Tina. Three and a half openings in the bridge. That's good. Yes. What did your partner say to get you the right one? Uh, dark bridge. Dark bridge. Christine. Red. Red. One more. Yes. Uh, she specifically called out the weeping willow. The weeping willow, even though they all have weeping willows. Yeah, but that one had the most Here's my question. Did anyone say it's a Monet? Too bad, because they're all Monet. That's not going to help you. So those are all good answers. Those are all really good answers, but none of them are dispositive. And let me show you something without you feeling bad. All the pictures I showed you had bridges and foliage and lily pads and water. Now, I've been doing this a long time. I love what I do. I'm pretty good at what I do, but what I'm not good at is PowerPoint. And if any of you had said to your partners, oh, my God, slide is so weird. It has this bizarre white border on the right side and the bottom. Your game is over. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, that's just stupid. You gave me 45 seconds to describe this painting. Why would I waste precious time describing an inane white border? And here's why. Because it's the game changer. And in the, I've been doing this exercise since 2004. And in the 12 years that I've been doing it, six pairs of people have self-identified to me that they included the white border in their description. Three of the six have been United States Special Operations Navy SEALs. And so when I've asked them, why did you include the white border in your description, you know what they said? We're trained to use every piece of information we have. Everything. 
So you know what? The small details can be the game changer. There would be no discussion. You'd know right away if anyone mentioned the border. Okay, very quickly, I'm going to sum up in five minutes so I can leave some time for Q&A. Do you remember I showed you JR's picture, a man who took a picture of himself in a woman's eye? This is his work. This is what he does. And when I asked my classes to write four words to describe what they see in this picture, I collected the papers for six months. And I couldn't believe that one-third of the people did not include face or painting or photograph in their four words. And I thought, well, what else could you possibly say? Well, they said a lot. Stairs and hot and climbing and wires, favela, Rio, slum, ghetto, boys, beer, boxes, trucks. They said all kinds of things. And I realized, I began this session by telling you that no two people see anything the same way and you're accountable for your observations. And as I conclude, I want to refine that and say that no two people prioritize the same way and you are accountable for your prioritization. Urgent is different than important. Urgent is right now, this minute. Important could still be critical, but there's a different time factor. We are accountable for our observations and our prioritizations. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> what do you leave with? What, is it, what are your takeaways? Number one, everything deserves a second glance. Everything you see could be different than the last time you saw it. I'm showing you a sculpture at the Renwick Gallery. It's not a grandfather clock under a blanket. The entire thing is a sculpture. It's all carved from wood. Number two, everyone, everything has a backstory. Every client, every transaction, every patient has a backstory. This man survived the monsoon in India in 1985. Why does he look happy and smiling? Because he saved his means of making a living. He's a tailor. And he saved his sewing machine. And when the FAF company saw this, that's a FAF sewing machine, they sent him a brand new sewing machine. There's a backstory to everything. Number three. Big picture, small details. Barmaid, marble bar, champagne, bass ale, oranges. Is this a mirror behind her? Is that her backside? That's all the big picture. But don't forget the small details in the upper left-hand corner. You've got the trapeze artist's feet. That's why everyone's gathered in the first place. All the way up in the corner. Big picture, small details. You know what I mean when I say no matter how similar two situations, they're never the same. Lay the groundwork and say one's a painting and one's a photograph. Two situations of people by the sea. In the Cartier-Bresson, you're seeing them from the back, and in the Seurat, you're seeing them from the side. Listen, Apollo Robbins said last week, we have two ears and one mouth. Listen twice as much as you talk. I talk about what you see, what you notice, what you perceive. Think about what you're missing. What is it you're not seeing? Like the artist right here, Lou Bolin. He puts himself in every one of his works, and we have to think about what are we missing? What are we not seeing? Creativity and resourcefulness. After the events of 9-11 happened in the city, the federal government convened the 9-11 Commission and said, you tell us how on our watches these events happened. And the 9-11 Commission came back and said the intelligence community of the United States lacks creativity and imagination. And I'm not talking about painting and sculpting and making videos. I'm talking about going from this to this, broadening your vision to think what your job could be. And I show you the work of El Anatsui, one of my favorite sculptors. He goes to distilleries in Nigeria, and he picks up discarded bottle caps from people's liquor bottles. He flattens them, he hammers them, and he sews them together to make this. Amazing creativity, but a reminder for all of us to be creative and resourceful in the work that we do. This is an unfinished painting by Cezanne, but I don't want you to think of unfinished in the negative. It's potential for creativity, it's potential for collaboration and innovation. I devote a whole chapter to the unfinished, thinking about what potential the unfinished holds. You need to look in the mirror at the end of every day. 
Self-perception is critical to professional growth. You're not going to see this. But you need to know what you did right, what you did wrong, how you're going to replicate what you did right, and how you're going to avoid what you did wrong. And finally, last but not least, that is my website. That is the book I'll be happy to sign. I wanted to end with two slides of the painter Chuck Close. Many of you may know who Chuck Close is. Um, but the picture on the left is how you saw the world before the art of perception. And I show it to my classes saying, this is how you saw the world. Now, for those of you who don't know Chuck Close, he's paralyzed from the shoulders down. He uses his fingers minimally, and he paints with a brush in his mouth. So the picture on the left is how you saw the world before the art of perception. A bald white man with round glasses, green eyes, a goatee, and a t-shirt looking right out at you. There's nothing wrong with seeing the world this way. But after taking my session, I want my participants to see the world more like Chuck Close's portrait of five years later. He lowered his glasses to get the big picture of the small details. He broke down every quadrant of information. He made it more com compelling, more colorful, more interesting. And I think if you do all the things we talked about today, about choice of words, and think about your observations and your biases and your inferences, I think it makes you a sharper professional and a more interesting person. And I'm going to leave you with this last anecdote. When my son was in elementary school, we live on the east side, and my son went to elementary school on the west side. And I dropped him off one morning, and I'm sort of walking home quickly, trying to get a jog in across 12th Street to get some exercise. And a man in a wheelchair comes out of a building, and he's got a rope tied around his rib cage. And he's walking the cutest puppy I've ever seen. And you know New Yorkers are funny. You have to ask permission to pet someone's dog. So I said to the man in the wheelchair, can I pet your dog? He said, of course. So I got down on the ground, and I rolled around with this puppy, and I got pup kiss and you know, puppy hair all over me. And I stood up, and I brushed myself off. I thanked the man very much. He wheeled towards 6th Avenue. And I walked to fifth, and I turned around, and I realized that the man in the wheelchair was Chuck Close. I was so focused on his puppy dog that a man whose art I've been using for years, whose work I revere and have been using for 20 years and studying, was literally sitting right in front of me. There's a whole world out there we're missing. And I hope you'll think about bringing it from the background into the foreground so it can help with your professional and personal lives. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, uh, before I take to the table to sign any books, does anyone have any questions? Yes? So you say that you work uh, across a lot of different industries. Yes. Have you worked with advertising agencies? Have I worked with advertising agencies? Yes, I have. I have. I've worked with uh, a lot of people in, the, in creative fields, art students, architecture, advertising, and it's hard for them to step back and look at art objectively, but it also gives them a fresh perspective. Yes? Yes, I've done this training for the teachers wherever my son has been in school. And one of the teachers, one of his teachers gave me the best insight. She said, he was in third grade at the time, and she said, when those kids come in in the morning, before they even open their mouths, I know who's having a bad day. And I said, the truth is the same with adults. And so for teachers, we need to be really attuned to body language, facial expression, and nonverbal communication, because some kids won't always communicate what it is that they need to communicate. So I work with teachers a lot on nonverbal communication. And it's wonderful for them to be able to teach them art, not for their curricula, but for their own observation skills. Yes? When the light bulb goes off, yes. you know, does it stick with people, or do they need to kind of I've watched the light bulb go on and off. And the whole reason I wrote the book is because I kept getting these emails from people three months after the class, six months after the class, a year saying, you know, I'm using it. I had one police officer say, he's from North Carolina, he was a deputy sheriff, and he said, I realized after your class, 
before I pull the trigger, I better be able to tell myself why I'm pulling it because I'm going to be accountable to somebody else. So I had all these incredible anecdotes of how people were using their own visual intelligence, which inspired me to put it on paper. Yes, Robin. Um, was the lecture, um, the presentation that you did for us today similar to what you do for I tried to cram three hours into 45 minutes. No, my, my standard session is three hours or a whole day because I do another session on bias profiling and abstract art. Um, but yeah, standard session is either half a day or a full day. And I try to give you the overview. And I always have more slides than I do time. So that's the best I could do for an overview. Any other questions? Yes. I think it's very interesting. The question was, have I studied uh, the psychology or perception needs of people with special needs? And I have not. Um, I don't have any expertise in that area. I'm very specific. People ask me if I you know, can use dance or if I have other areas of expertise. I do not, and I'm very candid about that. Uh, I'm a lawyer. I'm an art historian. And I've worked with intelligence and law enforcement. Uh, and I've learned a lot from my own teaching, but I'm not schooled in that at all. Wish I was. Yes. Uh-huh. Much like a Navy SEAL who is very good. I'm sure it's not to get into politics, but in your training yes. in your police force, yes. can you see some of this with them, you know, that whole stop and this thing? I mean, yes. Yes. The accusations they weren't well trained. Well, I'll give you an example. Uh, when I was in London last week, I had a meeting at Scotland Yard. And my newest partner is the armed division of officers within the Metropolitan Police of Scotland Yard. And who do the armed officers in London protect? The royal family. Forget terrorism. Forget the people on the streets. They protect the royal family. And it was interesting because I showed the commanding officer in charge of the one armed division of Scotland Yard. I have a slide of all the different headwear that Muslim women wear the hajib and the niqab and the burqa and the shador. And he was very skeptical, because I watched him. He came into the meeting like this, and he said, I don't know what you're doing. He said, one of my officers told me about you. Can you show me what you do? And I watched his arms come down. And when the presentation was over, he said, you know that slide you showed of the Muslim headwear? He said, I had no idea of the difference. And so the idea of showing people what they don't know in a very non-threatening way seems to resonate. And art is safe data. I'm not showing them crime scenes. I'm not showing them things that are threatening in any way. So in working with different police forces and the intelligence community around the world, which I do, uh, they seem to be very receptive. It seems to be working. Anything else? Yes. Oh, no, OK. Uh, I think that's it. OK, I'll take one more. That's it. When you're working with the law enforcement, do you ever get involved with a Yeah, the question was, when I work with law enforcement, do we do anything with lineups or eyewitness testimony? I do a lot of work with my police divisions on eyewitness testimony because, as I'm sure you've heard and seen, it is highly unreliable, and yet it's something prosecution teams need to use. It's in their arsenal. Uh, so we go back and forth on eyewitness testimony, but we think about the body language and the facial expression, and most importantly, how do you communicate what it is that you remember that happened? And it's an ongoing battle. I don't know where it's going to land, but eyewitness testimony is a very, very big issue. 
So I'm afraid I have to uh, end the questioning. I will be sitting at the table signing books. Thank you again for coming tonight. Thank you for listening to this 92i program. For more information, visit 92i.org. This program is copyright 2016 by the 92nd Street Young Men's and Young Women's Hebrew Association.